Hi, my name is Laura Godfrey Isaacs. I am a community midwife working in London part time, but I have a background also as an artist and as a producer working in the arts for over 20 years. So I came into midwifery quite late. Hello and welcome back to the Lockdown Babies podcast. I'm Philippa Giu and after my own baby was born in July 2020, I've been sharing the remarkable stories of the families who had their little ones during the middle of a global pandemic. I also chat to researchers, scientists and charities as we try to piece together what our future looks like, both for us as parents who experienced having a baby in the pandemic, but also for our lockdown babies. Thank you so, so much for being here. I'm so happy that you agreed to come on and speak to me. And I know that we've got a lot to talk about and a a lot to cover, but I'm really interested to hear actually how you got into midwifery so kind of late. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually trained when I was 47, so that's extremely late. (laughs) And I remember sort of uh, ringing up King's College London where I later trained to say, you know, am I actually too old to train? And they were like, no, 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 it's great. You know, and you've got life experience. So yeah, I've actually been a midwifery for 10 years now. So it's been quite a journey. There were lots of reasons that I went into it, really. I had very sort of different and diverse experiences of birth myself, from which I've learned a lot. And by the time I trained, my younger daughter was 10. So I felt like she was more at an independent stage of her life. And my old daughter was 17. So I felt like I wanted to draw on my own mothering experience to kind of support and nurture other mothers. And I think it sort of followed for me also a kind of feminist trajectory. So I had worked as an artist. I sort of identified really as a sort of feminist artist. And I was very interested in the way that women's bodies were particularly depicted in art. And I'd done a lot of work around that and also had taught art, um, particularly sort of looking at that in the way that I was teaching. So I really saw sort of midwifery as this sort of ultimate feminist profession, really, Um, all about women and people who birth, all about kind of trying to support people going through that, get good start in life. Uh, So I felt on sort of many ways, sort of personally and professionally, it was kind of like where I was going. And I was also, I changed career before I'd gone from being a sort of artist and a lecturer to setting up and running my own company, arts production company. And so I'd already sort of taken a bit of a leap. Uh, which at the time felt like a huge change, but had really paid off. And I had sort of gained a lot through sort of doing that. So again, I sort of felt somehow it was time for me to make another change. And this was a bigger leap really into a completely new profession. I guess when you decided to make that leap and and retrain and, and start again, I suppose, you never could have imagined or it never would have even crossed your mind that you'd end up working through a pandemic. Not at all. And I remember during the sort of height of the pandemic, and we have to remember we are still in the pandemic, saying to friends who don't work in healthcare, you know, it is so challenging at the moment. And I never believe that I would, you know, be going through this. And they would like say to me, or I remember one person saying to me, well, you know, you trained to be a healthcare professional. What did you expect? And I was like, well, no, I didn't expect (laughs) to be working through a pandemic. This is a one in a hundred year kind of situation and one which I think very few of us had any kind of awareness of the being a risk that it would happen again in our lifetime. So, yeah, you know, with a post-war gen, I'm just on the edge of the the sort of baby boomers, post-war generation, you know, that have not, obviously there are always wars going on in the world, but we haven't had a world war. We've had a very privileged, I've had a very privileged life in many ways. Um, so I think for lots of reasons, it was a huge shock um, and one that 
I was also going through quite a lot personally, which I can talk about as well. So it was sort of double whammy in many ways. Take me back to February, March 2020, when we started to hear these ripples of this virus, this coronavirus that was in China. And I think in the February, it kind of seemed so far away. It was just something that was happening in China and it didn't really affect us. And then bam, suddenly our lives were also so so hugely impacted and, and we got sent into lockdown. What was that time like for you? I think it's it's quite difficult to untangle also personal circumstances at the time. So I actually had a diagnosis, a second diagnosis of breast cancer in January 2020. So from that time forward, I knew that I was going to have to have a mastectomy. And so there was this kind of impending kind of situation that I was trying to manage personally. And I was sort of started to be aware of the pandemic thinking, oh, God, is that going to disrupt my care? And then how is it going to affect, you know, me being a midwife? And then as things started to unfold, I realized that it was going to have an impact on me personally. And actually, my operation got postponed. It had another impact whereby I had to isolate. So I was working virtually from quite an early point because the risk of getting coronavirus for me would have meant that I wouldn't have been able to have the operation when I wanted to have it. And then as it sort of hit, the whole of our service got completely reorganized within the space of days. We were just inundated with emails and changes on the most incredible scale so that, you know, I was working at the time in a really small, very effective team. And suddenly we were told, right, no, we're going to merge with this other team. We're going to go almost completely virtual with our appointments, which we had always resisted. Our community team where I work were very, very dedicated to in-person visiting people at home, maintaining that level of care. So the whole service was kind of reorganized. And then, of course, there was lots of information coming through about what PPE to wear and behavior change. So it was an absolutely devastating time to be honest, in terms of the level of changes that we had to adapt to, the way we were working. And then at the time, I was also trying to negotiate this date for an operation. And so, yeah, all the way through the pandemic, we were probably getting information ahead of most other people. And I definitely felt that when I was sort of talking to other friends that didn't work in healthcare, often their awareness of what was going on or what was coming was kind of lapsing behind perhaps the messages that we were getting. You know, we were actually updated. I mean, following the first kind of initial, I would say, huge disruption and rupture of the services, following that, things got reorganized and, you know, new guidelines came out about, you know, what PPE to wear and and how to do appointments and what appointments were going to be virtual and what appointments were still going to be face-to-face, you know, what to do if someone had COVID, etc. So, you know, a whole load of new guidelines came quite quickly from the trust. But then I think we did definitely, there was a lag. And I think that a lot of the difficulty for us as midwives was not only adapting to different ways of working, but also trying to update women trying to support women who were quite understandably distressed, anxious about what was happening, unclear of what was happening. Things were changing all the time. So we were sort of, on the one hand, trying to adapt ourselves and trying to 
give as best care as we could within the circumstances, as well as also being scared of our own health and sort of trying to mitigate that against what our professional responsibilities were. And at the other time, trying to support a lot of people who were very anxious and ringing up and wanting information, which we couldn't always, you know, communicate to them or there was uncertainty, and we had to support people with that uncertainty. And I think the sort of policies where people were not allowed to have partners with them for appointments and scans was one of the most difficult situations. And I remember a particular woman who, and this will be familiar to you and other listeners, I'm sure, who had had a previous pregnancy loss. And so she was very anxious about her scan, quite understandably, and she wasn't allowed to bring her partner with her. And we had various strategies in place where, you know, you could take in a phone and they could be there with a phone. They could be outside the building. And if there was a problem, they would be allowed to come in. But obviously, that's not in any way ideal. And I remember trying to advocate for a particular woman and writing to the scan department and getting a sort of flat no um, and then having to communicate that to her, which was obviously really difficult and distressing for her and difficult for me to have to justify, to be honest. So, yeah, lots, lots of difficulties, really. Yeah, no, what you're, what you're saying about the fact that, you know, you had to be the one to say, no, you can't have your partner with you. Of course, you were just following the rules. I'll never forget my midwife who at half one in the morning sent my husband home after our baby had been born and I knew... I knew it was really hard for her, but what could she do? What could she do? And I think we sit here and we're we're like, oh, they sent my husband home. But of course, midwives were just following the rules. Yeah. I mean, it was, as I say, very difficult to see some of the key principles of midwifery and certainly community midwifery where I was working of, you know, face-to-face visiting people at home, continuity of care being sort of eroded in that way. It was very difficult and I think it's a big reason why I think now even a lot of us midwives feel quite ground down by the whole pandemic and the whole situation because not only you know were we at times anxious about our own health and you know in the front line as you said many healthcare workers have died in the pandemic because they caught coronavirus we were also you know aware of the ravages that this was causing for people that were birthing and the distress that it was causing and the knock-on consequences that there could be over time for those women, for those families, for those babies, you know. So it was it has caused a lot of distress, I think, for midwives and erosion of their kind of self-esteem and their their ability to feel that they can carry on in a service, you know, that at the moment is incredibly short staff still. And I think it's a lot to do with the fact that a lot of people have retired early during the pandemic because of all these factors. Um, A lot of people have left the service because of these factors. And there's a lot of sickness, way, way more sickness than I've ever seen in our service before. Midwives, I think, are, you know, dropping like flies, one could almost say, you know. So yeah, it's had a really detrimental effect, I think, on the on the profession. And add to that, you know, different reviews and, you know, this kind of villainization of midwives in the news to some extent, you know, we, we hear the worst of it, don't we? These, you know, babies that died and awful things that happened. And of course, those things need to be investigated and, and need to be talked about. But you don't hear every story where 
you know, it goes right and, and a midwife is amazing. And, and I think that's possibly not helped either. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think the issues are very complex as to those failures, which, you know, are absolutely horrific to have been revealed. Um, And there's no way that I would ever seek to, you know, dispute that. But the issues are very complex. And I think, unfortunately, inevitably, the press often picks up on a few issues and they, you know, it's quite a common thread, unfortunately, to sort of vilify midwives on vilify people that support, you know, normal birth or physiological birth, however you want to term it. And so I think often the complexity of the issues not fully perhaps understood or aired in the way that they should be um, and that a few sort of things out and are picked out and they're often these common narratives that, you know, unfortunately play into other narratives in the media, misogynistic narratives and, you know, ridiculing women and punishing women. Unfortunately, I think as someone in the profession, one often feels that we are unfairly treated, as I say, not in any way to not acknowledge failures where they've happened, absolutely. But I feel like midwives are often vilified and therefore the the actual complexity and the actual issues that need to be addressed are not necessarily addressed on a societal level. Just taking you back to March 2020 time, when you started to hear, okay, partners won't be allowed at scans, partners won't be allowed in until women are four centimeters dilated, partners will be allowed to stay with the baby for an hour and then they'll be then they'll be sent home. And you started to kind of get word of all these different regulations, you know, changes to home visits and all all these different things. Did you think at that time, this is not good? This is not gonna bode oh, well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean Unfortunately, I'm only too aware of the amount of birth trauma that there is with people in our system, our maternity system, before the pandemic. And so I was very aware that those restrictions would make birth trauma much worse for some people and probably more, you know, frequent for others. I think also I was aware that one didn't really know at that point what would be the long-term impact. You know, what would be the long-term impact of not being able to have your partner there all the time on the person who's birthing, on that partner, on the way that they bond as a family? What would be the impact when they got home and not be able to have visitors or, you know, midwife visits or other visitors? You know, what's... I was aware that that was a sort of brewing storm. And also I was aware, because particularly with our caseload, I work in an inner city London hospital, you know, that that would affect people who were already vulnerable in a far more profound way. So again, it's kind of compounding existing vulnerabilities, existing um, inequalities. And therefore, you know, I'm only too aware, having visited people in their homes, you know, people living in very poor accommodation in overcrowded situations, that's again going to compound their difficulties where they're having to be at home, they're not able to go out, they're not being able to, you know, use the social structures of support around them. So, you know, I think it had a detrimental effect on everyone. But obviously, that people that already have vulnerabilities and inequalities, it's going to affect them even worse. And so that was, you know, my concern was for everyone, but also for the particularly vulnerable people and could be potentially devastating for them. And I think it's 
fair to say that that the impacts have been profound. The rates of postnatal PTSD, postnatal depression and, and postnatal anxiety have been huge and there has been a rise in in that because of this. Somebody that I interviewed from um, one of the, the charities doing amazing work in this space said that the mandate was to kind of keep COVID out at all costs and, and the cost has been, you know, this mental health crisis. Yeah, no, I think it's very disturbing and I think that's totally understandable, you know, people being isolated, people not having the support of their partners, people being fearful, which they were of going into hospital, fearful of catching the disease itself. You know, all of that is just compounding what unfortunately already in our culture leads to high numbers of people with trauma, birth trauma, unfortunately, and postnatal depression or anxiety and depression in pregnancy as well. So we were already in a situation where there are many, many really serious issues to address in maternity services here and the support, particularly for mothers in our society. And this could only ever compound those, obviously, and the people that most vulnerable it having the most severe effect on. So yeah, I I felt quite a lot in despair, to be honest, about the whole situation. And I would try to just really acknowledge that with people you know and I remember when I was working a lot virtually as I was saying because I had to because of my own personal circumstances at first I felt oh god this is absolutely catastrophic I just how can I do all these appointments on the phone it's absolutely crazy you know we wouldn't even ring someone to discharge them before the pandemic but then I would sort of as one always does um, in midwifery actually is sort of develop a script almost, you know, of how you you kind of address certain issues. And I found that I kind of, particularly I was doing booking appointments on the phone a lot. So that's like the first appointment where you, it's about an hour long and you, you ask all the questions about kind of medical history, social circumstances. So there's a lot to get through. And I would start the whole appointment with going, well, this is this is crazy, isn't it? You know, uh, where are you at the moment? I'm sitting at home. You know, I'm working from home as well. And how are you doing? Um, and obviously it was far from ideal, but it was I got more practiced in doing it. And I think also people, obviously, because they were forced to had to do so much virtually. So over the time, I think I got more familiar and practice with it and the people I was talking to also started to feel more confident maybe because they were having to do everything else virtually as well and I did actually have some amazing conversations with people where there was a sort of weird kind of intimacy where we were just these sort of disembodied voices kind of talking to each other about our own experiences and how weird it all was and in some ways and that this is only with some people, obviously, but for some people, I felt maybe they find social situations difficult or, you know, are quite socially anxious or shy or are neurodiverse. For some people, actually having that phone call was actually probably better for them in some circumstances. And like I say, I had ended up having some incredible conversations with people where I think they maybe disclose things in a way that perhaps they wouldn't face to face even. And that's why I do think, you know, we've pretty much gone to back to face to face, but I still think some phone calls can be okay, you know, uh, for some people and in some circumstances, you know, they're obviously not as a blanket thing. No, that is a really interesting outlook. And yeah, and I guess as well, you know, you're big and you're heavy. 
and you can't actually be bothered to traipse down to the surgery or to traipse over to the hospital or get on the bus. I remember getting on the bus to the hospital and thinking, I cannot be bothered. I, I wouldn't mind actually having this over the phone. But then, like you say, then there were other times where you wanted to see somebody, you wanted somebody to touch touch your tummy and tell you everything was okay. And I think it is that balance, isn't it? I particularly felt anxious about doing postnatal appointments um, on the phone because, you know, obviously, unless you're in a sort of case learning team where you do people's appointments at home, generally people otherwise would come into the clinic and therefore they're coming to us. Whereas I think what's really important with postnatal visits, we're going to someone's territory and that's important in many ways. You know, one, hopefully they feel more comfortable at home and, you know, you're less, the power balance is different because I'm going into their space. They're not coming to the clinic and, you know, where I have my badge on and I'm all sort of like, you know, got the sort of institution around me. But also on a sort of safeguarding point of view, I would be able to, I think it's really key to actually go to people's homes and like see how they're living, where they're living, meet other members of the family, you know, and that often you pick up things there or you can sort of sense something's not right, which, you know, would be very easy to mask on the phone. So I was particularly anxious about not being able to do that um, in, in, in any way at all at one stage in the pandemic. That's so interesting because I remember a midwife ringing me up instead of coming to the house and she said how are you doing are you okay and I just sort of said yeah yeah I'm fine thanks yep bye thanks I'm fine yep I really wasn't fine actually and I think if she'd been in the house and been sat on my sofa and said how are you doing my answer might have been quite different yeah because we've got all that kind of social conventions haven't we someone asks you how you are and you go oh fine thanks yeah yeah I mean I always frame that question in a different way I say like you know how are you feeling in yourself? How's your mood? So that people understand, oh, you're actually asking about me. You're not just doing a sort of, how are you? You know, I actually want to know. And again, doing it in person is quite different where you can have eye contact with someone and you can read their body language. And, you know, it's sort of very often that question triggers people to cry, actually, because they think that you've come just to look at the baby and kind of see how they're doing. And then they suddenly realise, oh, no, actually, you actually want to know how I am. Maybe I'm not okay. Obviously, you had a lot of work to do to kind of adapt to working remotely, working on screens. And and you've talked about some of the anxieties that that you had around that. Um, I'm interested to hear what your colleagues who were actually still in the hospital were, were thinking and feeling at that time. Because obviously, like we've said, beyond difficult time to be working in a hospital in our healthcare system and to have to do really difficult things like telling women no you can't have your partner they've got to go things like that that must have just been so so difficult so what was kind of word on the ground from your friends and colleagues it was a very changing situation for midwives I think they they had to deal with wearing really uncomfortable PPE particularly during births which you know we were wearing in clinics but we weren't having to sort of, you know, actually um, help facilitate births and be in a room with people for hours. And so I think that was very difficult for people to have to wear all that PPE um, and maintain all those protocols and have to enforce all the rules. But I think in some ways that the difference was that as is always, unfortunately, the protocols and the support tends to be very much centralised within the hospital. 
and the community teams are often an afterthought and not always so well catered for. So in some respects, I think that's unfortunately what happened is that a lot of the home birth services were suspended. Everything was centralized in the hospital. There was this kind of level of control and emphasis on infection control and everything being centralized in the hospital. And so I think they might disagree with me, but in some respects, we in the community felt like, as usual, all the emphasis and the support and everything is going to the hospital service and we're a little bit of an afterthought Um, and yet we've also got our own issues you know we're having to travel on public transport if we're doing visits we've got people coming in you know we're still wearing all the PPE during our clinics all day I did hear some people from the community preferred to go and work in the hospital so there was a bit of a sort of and some people were asked to so there was quite a lot of sort of people moving around different services I think it's fair to say that, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast have had a bit of a tricky time the last couple of years, whether that be during their pregnancy, the isolation, I know was hard for lots of people, the birth and and the afterwards, the lack of support, the lack of clinics, you know, all those things, you know, you know, all too well. And I know you've talked about how you don't necessarily think that the rules were, were the right rules to bring in, but I'm interested to hear about how we can move forward from this now I think we heard our prime minister say last week didn't we it's it's time to move on now and actually that's not so easy for so many of us who actually are really struggling to move on and to kind of get over it and are still even today two years on living with these lasting impacts so I'm interested to hear how you think we can kind of move on from this what lessons we can learn from this and and what people can do to kind of start healing from it all Well, I think acknowledging the long-term impact of these issues is really important. Like you say, it's it's very easy for people that haven't been through it to go, well, let's move on. You know, we are also still living in a pandemic and we're probably going to be living with this, you know, for a couple more years, it seems. So, you know, we're also, that is a bit of a sort of denial, I think, of where we still are. I mean, I think acknowledging it's really important. I think people should be listened to and heard. I think they should be supported. I think there should be more support for particularly mental health and social connectedness, which is a really, you know, particularly that social network, trying to reestablish that and provide it for people that maybe don't have it, who maybe, you know, English isn't their first language or they're, you know, here without family and friends, how important that is. I think if we can build that more into people's lives, because I think a lot of stuff has gone and we need to rebuild those kind of structures and those kind of social connectedness opportunities for people. It's quite interesting now because quite a lot of people I'm dealing with now are, are on their, they're having a baby now after having had a baby in sort of 2020 or during lockdown and are very much noticing the difference you know, and I've had that experience quite a lot in the last few weeks where I visited people and they were like, oh, you know, we had a baby two years ago and it's so different. My partner couldn't come in until I was in established labor. And when we came home, we couldn't have any visitors and my parents couldn't come and how difficult that was and how nice and how lovely it is to have a baby now where whatever you think about restrictions going, etc. you know, but people can have visitors and do and, you know, really relishing that and noticing the difference. So that's been a really interesting thing that I've people have been mentioning to me that are having babies now after having had a baby in 2020. 
But I think, you know, generally just so much more acknowledgement of the importance of the social and psychological aspects of birth. We concentrate so much on the clinical side and obviously that's it should be a sort of taken that that people are safe and they have safe birth experiences and safe pregnancies but i think we often neglect the importance of the social and the psychological and even the spiritual and the cultural aspects of giving birth you know it is a rite of passage particularly with your first child becoming a parent becoming a mother that is a huge transition in your life it's a huge thing for your partner as well you become a family And I just don't think we have in the past and even more importantly now, we should be focusing on how important those aspects are of care and having provision to support people to address those things. And that's that's why I love actually postnatal care, because so many of the conversations are about that transition and what it means and coming to terms with it. And, you know, all the pressures that we have exerted on us on trying to be the perfect parent and all these kind of um, stereotypes, unhelpful negative stereotypes we have about being a mother and being a parent, which no one can live up to, nor should they try. And yet very little actual support for people to actually just be good enough, which is what most of us hopefully are. No, I really want to ask you about your maternal journal, because I feel like this is something that might help people listening to this podcast who have had a bit of a hard time and are maybe still struggling to kind of process everything and move on. And I think your maternal journal, which I'll ask you to tell us a bit about, might actually be really useful in this kind of this power of journaling and and writing things down. Tell me, tell me what it is for, for anybody who doesn't know. Yeah, sure. So maternal journal is something that I started a in 2017 um, and so it's a kind of a workshop started as a workshop format about bringing people together people who have birthed or are pregnant as a group together and we introduce them to the idea of journaling which is a sort of catch-all phrase that you might be more familiar with the idea of sort of keeping a diary or life writing any of those keeping a scrapbook a sketchbook any kind of regular practice where you're kind of documenting what's going on a space for reflection a space for expression and what we've done is we've developed journaling guides for people so in a group we would follow one of the guides and they could be um, a poetry guide a writing guide a collage drawing even sewing we have some guides that involve dance So what we do is introduce people to different ways of journaling in order for them hopefully to find the the way that suits them best. Often people have been told when they were younger, oh, you can't write, you can't draw, and they kind of close off those sides of themselves. And yet we believe, and it's a very common idea, is that everyone's creative. You just need to unlock that. And it's not about making art necessarily. It's just about finding a vehicle, creative vehicle, you know, to express how you feel and explore what's happened to you. So the workshop format is we come together and journal together and then everyone shares what they've made and that creates a wonderful kind of community of support where you can talk about what's happening to you and and have that acknowledged and then understand that often your experience is a common experience so you feel less alone with things by sharing them. And then what we've done is from there developed um, a website and we're on social media where all of our guides, well, we have about 30 guides now that are free on our website. 
which is just maternaljournal.org and people can download them. There's lots of tips and, and, and kind of helpful inspirations there to journal on your own. And then last year, at the end of last year, we actually produced a book. So we've got the Maternal Journal, which is a guide to journaling um, published by Pinter and Martin. In there, we've got 80 journaling guides and again, lots of tips and lots of sort of inspiring stuff from people that are journaling themselves, you know, mothers, artists, people that journal regularly, lots of reading lists. Um, if you want to look at other stuff connected with journaling and also our format as well, so that if you want to set up a journal group yourself, you can follow our format. And we've got groups all over the world now. So in Europe, America, Thailand, we've got a Japanese group starting up. So we sort of democratized maternal journals so that people can set up and run their own group, which, you know, they are doing, which is really exciting. Why do you think journaling in in pregnancy and and in those those days after you've had a baby is is so powerful I mean people talk you know about birth stories you talked about that at some stage and you found it useful to write your birth story so that's quite a common practice that people do to sort of unpack what's happened to them and you know there's a there's a really interesting kind of history particularly of women diary keepers so before women could maybe work as professional artists or have more access to that historically, keeping a diary was a kind of acceptable thing for a woman to do, particularly to explore her creativity, but also to express social and political views. And so there is this kind of legacy of women's diary keeping that we, we kind of link everyone to through the project. And one of the one of the sort of genres of that, in a way, is telling your birth story or writing about what's happened to you. You know, there's lots of research that shows creativity and writing is positive for your mental health and well-being. So we don't really know quite why. There's lots of reasons why it is. Um, but I think it just gives you an opportunity to process what's happened to you, to think about it in a different way, to get it off your chest, to also document it. So it's kind of there as something you can look back on uh, and remember, because often you forget details of experiences, but when you write them down, things come back to you or you remember them in a different way or you start to understand them in a different way. I mean, there's lots of advantages to doing that. And I think that pregnancy and birth, they're such enormous experiences as we we're talking about, you know, the sort of social, psychological, cultural aspects of it, as well as the physical, obviously, so there's a lot going on, you know, there's a lot to process, lots of changes in your body. Often people, you know, are making changes in their life as well because they're pregnant. They want to move house or things change in their relationship or they start thinking about their own parenting. Like, how was I parented? How do I want to be a parent? So you, you often have very powerful dreams when you're pregnant. So your kind of imagination is on fire. So for all of those reasons, I think having a space to kind of unpack all of that or a space to explore it um, creatively is, is really beneficial. I feel like it would be such a beautiful gift for somebody, a friend or somebody that you know who's pregnant and to kind of gift them this book that they can then start to unpack throughout pregnancy and afterwards and to start to learn about some of those things. And I think for me, I, I just, we talked, you talked about me, me writing my story. Now I just wrote it in my phone. And that's the thing about journaling, isn't it? Yes, you can do it in a, in a book or in, in whatever, but you can, you can do it anywhere on a scrap of paper or anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about that in the project and in the book that, 
you can definitely journal on your phone just using the notes and often you'll be maybe feeding your baby and you can be writing with something on your phone with the other hand and we talk about that a lot in the book you know that all of our exercises and our whole sort of emphasis is is on trying to find those moments when you can be creative you know so journaling you know we've got guides in there that take five minutes that take 10 minutes we understand that parents are busy they don't have a lot of time they often don't have a lot of money so all of our you know uh, materials we suggest are things you can just buy in a pound shop or something if you want to use a book and art materials or as you say you can literally use your phone so we're trying to be practical about trying to find those spaces where people can be creative in their lives and not expect them to have huge amounts of time or resources to do it. If you just remind us again where we can have a look at the book and have a look at some of the resources that you've you've talked yeah, about. Sure. So we have a website which is maternaljournal.org where there's lots of free guides you can download and lots of tips and things like that. And then the book, which is Maternal Journal, Creative Guide to Journaling Through Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond, is available. It's on Amazon. If you just Google and look it up on Amazon, it's printed by Pinter and Martin. So you can get it through the publishers or booksellers, Hive, any of the book platforms. It's available at the moment. I think it's discounted. It's £12 something. It's a really good resource. And we hope that it's something that you use over and over again. And and how are you, by the way? How are you now and how, how's your health? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really good. I mean, I had the mastectomy in April 2020 um, and I didn't need any other treatment. So, you know, it's, it's all got a little bit kind of tumbled up into the whole sort of pandemic experience, you know, that added experience on top. But yeah, no, thank you for asking. I'm fine. And I, I only had five weeks off and then I've been back working all the way through. So it hasn't sort of been a major interruption which has been great a huge thank you to laura godfrey isaacs for taking the time to speak to me if you want to find out more about laura's maternal journal i've put a link in the show notes i just want to take a second to say thank you to all the lovely listeners who take the time to message me if you want to chat search lockdown babies podcast on instagram drop me a message i'll always reply i'll be back next wednesday with a brand new episode bye-bye for now